0: While we wait, I'll just pass these around. These are uh, different like commentaries and resources on the Book of Daniel, um, if you want to take a look at them. Uh, the first one, I think, is the, probably the easiest or most helpful. This is by Sinclair Ferguson, if you know who that is. He's a guy from Ligonier, a uh, really helpful teacher, but uh, just very like application heavy, very pastoral, which is nice. It's not like a super technical commentary. So you can take a look at this. Uh, I'm just recommending these as resources because the Book of Daniel can sometimes be confusing and hard to follow. So. I'm trying to give you resources ahead of time. Uh, the other one uh, is by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, his commentary, I think I recommended a long time ago on the Book of Judges. He's also got one on Daniel. I think you've started. That's hilarious. Oh, sorry. I can... We haven't started yet. We haven't started yet. You guys are good. I'm just uh, giving resources. Uh, and I'll pass this one around, too. Um, he's. Uh... Sorry, right, I'll wait till I sit down. Uh, yeah. This one, if you guys like uh, people who are like funny and witty uh, in their commentaries and not just like dry, this guy is like a scholar and he's hilarious. So uh, he's got cool stories. So I, it's worth picking up just for for those as well. Um, and then this one, if you are if you really wanna go technical and you wanna know a full dissection of the visions and, and all that stuff in Daniel, this would be the commentary to get. This one is called the, sorry, I took the cover off, the Reformed Expository Commentary. Uh, that's quite a series name, but anyway. Uh, this is by a guy named Ian Duguid or something like that uh, and so I'll pass this around as well if you want to just peek around in them and things like that. Um, I'll do that. I'll pass it around while we're doing the Q&A stuff so you can look at it and not worry that you're not following along or anything like that. So um, these are here for you and then uh, when we conclude if you guys have any uh, resources on Daniel that you found helpful in the past or anything that has come to mind um, before we get done tonight I'm going to ask that if you have anything like that in your mind that you share it because we're kind of embarking on a book together, so um, we'll do that, though, both, both towards the end of our time. So you have a little bit of time to think, so you're not put on the spot about, oh, shoot, I have something, I forgot the title of it, or, you know, whatever else, so. Um, with that being said, uh, we're going to start uh, now our teaching time, uh, and we're just going to start in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and for today, just so you don't, uh, just, you know, roughly, uh, for today, we're just going to read two verses, the first two verses of Daniel chapter one. Um, but in future, just mentally prepare yourself. There's going to be some long sections of narrative and I do intend to read all of it. Okay. Because I think that's probably the most beneficial thing we're going to do together is actually in narrative, just read it and feel the flow of it before we try to understand it. So for example, if you're looking ahead, chapter two, Look at how long chapter 2 is, right? We're probably going to do chapter 2 in one go, at least reading it all in one go, and then it might take us two weeks to break it down, but we're going to read it all together. Does that make sense? So in narrative, that's kind of the ambition. But for this week, only two verses. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. So, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then, uh, just for a preview for next week, uh, the transition point, then the king commanded Asphanez, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So these uh, first two verses are what we're going to focus on this week, and then, uh, but next week, verses three and four become important. The reason I read those is because they're actually the fulfillment of a prophecy we're going to take a look at in a a few minutes here. So uh, Daniel chapter one, uh, verse one and two for week one. and if you want, uh, let's say, a title uh, for, for this week or like a main idea, uh, see, I wrote this down somewhere. Um, uh, this one is about having the right lens. So uh, having the right lens of, of history as it takes place. Um, the reason I just want to focus on the first two verses is because understanding them is, I think, key to understanding or framing the whole book of Daniel. So uh, if, you, if you have any familiarity with the book of Daniel, uh, maybe some things come to mind, stories like Daniel and the Lion's Den uh, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the burning uh, furnace, in the fiery furnace. Uh, you have, uh, if any of you have ever seen Veggie Tales, you have uh, that spin off story of bowing down to the, the chocolate bunny. Um, so uh, these stories are familiar to us, but most of what you're probably familiar with in the book of Daniel is the first half of the book, the first six chapters. Uh, I, if you're familiar with the second half of the book, it might be more in terms of, oh, that's kind of like the book of Revelation, and I know that it exists. But maybe I'm not so familiar. I wouldn't feel comfortable necessarily breaking that down to anyone. And that's okay. The book of Daniel kind of has this reputation where the first six chapters are great stories and stories of heroism. And then the, the last six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are maybe to be avoided. Very confusing. It's very much like Revelation where there's scrolls and, and beasts and, and wild horns and, and kingdoms falling. And so we'll get there when we get there. But understanding all of the book, uh, you really need the first two verses. And so, th- think with me really quickly about what is the, the worldview that is laid out in the first two verses. So, verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is the, the, the lens of the human playing field. What happens in human terms during the fall of uh, Ju- Judea, the fall of Jerusalem? So, what happens from a human lens, if you're just a normal human historian writing down penning down the history of the Israelites. Well, when King Jehoiakim was king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came, besieged the city, sacked it. And then we read in verse 3 and 4, and he took many of the youths and the nobility and the best and the brightest of the people and dragged them off to his court, okay? That's on a human playing field what's going on uh, if you're just recording history, right? If you were to ask, well, you know, what happened at the start of World War II? Most of your history textbooks when you were growing up would mention the facts, dates, events, and people as they happened. What's interesting about the book of Daniel is not just a historical commentary. It's also a theological commentary on what happened. And you get that worldview, that perspective in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that his is Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels, vessels in the treasury of his God. So Daniel is starting off with uh, essentially a historical uh, point in time. Uh, this is likely happening uh, in 605 BC. And we're going to take a look at where this happens in, in just a moment. But in the book of 2 uh, Kings, uh, there's a series of events that unfold. Uh, first is the fall of the Northern Kingdom by the, at the hands of the Assyrians. Many of the prophets like Isaiah and, uh, and Hosea prophesy about these things happening. Um, And then later on in 2 Kings, there's the predicted fall of the Southern Kingdom and then the subsequent fall of the Southern Kingdom, which happens in in 605 at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And that happens over the course of several different sieges and uh, Nebuchadnezzar kills kings and overthrows them. Uh, So let's take a look at that historically, just to frame where we're at. And that's going to be in 2 Kings 24. And I'm going to read starting in... Chapter 23, verse 36, right at the end of chapter uh, 23. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father's house had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he returned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent him against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them from his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for all the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon so this is the historical unfolding of the things that we just read in the book of Daniel to frame the timeline now if you're asking okay which prophets specifically prophesied this there's a bunch of them uh we're going to look first a couple chapters earlier in second kings 20 uh second kings chapter 20 and this takes place in verse 18 of that chapter Uh, so I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse, uh, 16. Yeah. Sorry. Second Kings 20. Yeah. And this is verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. So Isaiah is the prophet, you know, the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking to the king Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that, which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? So Isaiah prophesied to Hezekiah, the fall of Judah, essentially. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And one of Hezekiah's sons is Jehoiakim, who we just read about. Now, this prophecy is told, told in more fullness in Isaiah's account. So if you go to Isaiah 39, Isaiah is uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 39. And you read the essentially the same kind of account. And I want to start reading just in verse uh, 3. So the, the pretext of this in earlier in chapter 39 is uh, envoys from Babylon have come, which just means messengers. Um, and so then the King Hezekiah shows them everything in the treasury of, I, of Israel. And so in verse three, we read, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Now, before you read then the prophecy again, which we just read, we'll read it again. It's important to know that this is not just some arbitrary punishment. What Hezekiah was doing when he's showing the envoys of Babylon, he's likely showing them, hey, these are the riches of Israel. Partner with us so we can deal with the Assyrians. So God has just miraculously, right before this, delivered Israel from the Assyrians, essentially destroying 180,000 of them. And so now Hezekiah is going to hedge his bets and go try to get in bed with Babylon with military might and with power. So when envoys come from Babylon, he shows them all the storehouses, everything. This is why a negative prophecy is about to happen. It's not just Hezekiah being foolish. It's him actually about to get in bed with Babylon. And then Isaiah prophesies to Hezekiah, verse 5, Hear the words of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Well, it is true that in the days of Hezekiah, there is peace and security. But what you read uh, there in Second Kings 24 and really in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, uh, this is kind of when the, the punishment or the prophecy comes to fulfillment. So this prophecy occurred about 100 years before Babylon actually sieges and sacks Jerusalem. So the prophetic fulfillment of events that have happened in the past, in the in the case of Isaiah, he prophesies the fall of the Southern Kingdom by the hands of Babylon. And here you have uh, Daniel opening, chronologically couching the events of the book by saying this takes place essentially shortly after this prophecy is fulfilled. And on human terms, uh, this would be seen as a military victory from Babylon over the Israelites. But there's something that we miss when we see that, and that's because we're not essentially entrenched in Eastern understandings of the world. In this day, when, when two nations go to war with each other, it's not just military power that's at play. It's actually seen between the two nations as a battle between the gods of Babylon and the gods of the Israelites. And to make this clear, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if, if you think in your mind to 1 Samuel, uh, first opening chapters, Israel is at war with the Philistines. And what happens essentially is Israel goes to battle with them. Israel loses in the battle. Then Israel takes the Ark of the Covenant, goes into battle with the Philistines, loses again. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, and what do they do with it? They take it to the Temple of Dagon, their god, and they put the Ark of the Covenant there, subservient to Dagon, because they're declaring Dagon is more powerful than Israel's god. It's more powerful than Yahweh. Now, there's a a hilarity that unfolds because Yahweh actually deals with this debacle on his own and gets the Ark of the Covenant, basically by his own providence, back to Israel without any help of the Israelites. That's for reading later. But what's interesting is this is couching the book of Daniel in a, let's say, a cosmic battle between the gods. So the gods of the Babylonians right now are being seen as superior to Yahweh. And notice that this is seen uh, in verse, uh, sorry, in verse two, in the latter half of verse two. Uh, it's the second verse, or sorry, second uh, sentence in the verse. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the king of Babylon is doing the same kind of thing as the Philistines did because they see it as a victory not just over the Israelites but a declaration that their gods are more powerful than Yahweh, the Israelites' God. So in the midst of all of this, the book of Daniel opens in the beginning of verse 2 and says, it's actually not that Babylon beat Israel on a military level. It's actually not that Yahweh is weaker than the gods of the Babylonians. It's actually that, verse two, the Lord had given Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And now we can ask the question, well, why would God see fit to do that? Because these are his people. It looks bad for him. It looks like he's a weak God. Why, why does he give his people into the hands of the Babylonians? Well, to understand that, we need to go look at the covenant that God has made with his people, and we're gonna go look in Leviticus 26. There's a couple of places where this is repeated, but Uh, For tonight, Leviticus 26 where I want to look. So God uh, has made a covenant with his people. Part of this covenant is uh, what we would call covenant obedience and covenant disobedience. So what this means is uh, if you're obedient to the covenant that God has given you, there's blessings associated with that. If you are disobedient to the covenant God gives you, then there are curses associated with that. Uh, we see this in Genesis 12 and 15 when Abraham is given the covenant and told if he obeys and holds on by faith to this covenant, there will be blessings for him and his offspring. But if he disobeys, there will be curses and, and, uh, and uh, let's say, punishment associated with that. In Leviticus 26, you see that. In most English Bibles, it's broken up. The first uh, 13 verses is titled under blessings for obedience or something to that effect. Uh, and then... Verse 14 and onward is punishments for disobedience. So just look at a couple of the blessings. So we'll just read a few of them. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 26. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread in the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful, harmful beasts from the land and the sword will not go through the land. You shall give chase to your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. I'm just going to stop there. So you see the, the blessings associated with obedience, they're not just what we would think of as spiritual blessings, they're actually material blessings for Israel. Faithfulness and harvest, abundance, richness, peace. These are material blessings for the nation of Israel. Well, what about if they disobey the covenant? Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies Shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength will be spent in vain, for your land will not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So the the curses of the covenant are severe. And they're not just spiritual curses. They're material curses for Israel. They're going to be dragged off. They're going to be beaten by their enemies. They're going to have no yield in the harvest time. They're going to have no fruit, no abundance. Well, this is pretty severe, right? Well, 2 Kings 24, we read that section where it says that surely the Lord did this. Why? Well, because they filled Israel with blood. They were wicked. They broke the covenant. They abandoned God. And so this is a punishment for the breaking of the covenant. So that's what we get in Daniel chapter 1. It's a view of history not just from the the worldly view of Babylon beat Israel, but also from a, a divine view, from God's perspective, that it's because God is actually giving his people over to the Babylonians. It's not that he's a weak God. It's not that he's powerless. Why is this important for understanding the book of Daniel? Well, the whole book of Daniel is actually going to play on the idea that God is not only more powerful than any of the Babylonian gods, he can save his faithful servants when he wants to. He can save Daniel. He can save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But actually, in the latter half of the book, when you get to those confusing prophecies, understanding these verses, that God is powerful over the Babylonians, well, it's going to expand that. He's not only powerful over the Babylonians, he's powerful over the kingdom that's going to succeed Babylon. He's powerful over the kingdom that's going to succeed that kingdom. And ultimately, at the end of days, he will rule and reign undisputed over the kingdoms of the world. This is kind of the thrust of the book of Daniel. The whole understanding of it is understanding, really, verse 2, that it's God who's sovereign over all these events, even the confusing prophecies towards the end. And if we keep that in mind, then it'll help us when we get to those prophecies at the end, it'll even help us understand that the stories in the book of Daniel are not merely uh, just be like Daniel because he was a good guy. It's, It's more than that. It's seeing that Daniel has a worldview that frames his actions. Daniel has a conviction about God that informs how he lives and how he conducts himself. And we need to understand that worldview first before we just try to emulate the things that Daniel does, which are certainly good things to emulate, but we need to understand why he does the things he does, not just do them because, you know, it's in our Bibles and, you know, Daniel a good guy, right? So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to pause there and then uh, close it in prayer and then we can move on to some, some discussion over this book. So Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are thankful to you, uh, particularly for uh, your, your word and the timeless message which it encapsulates. Uh, This message is not only relevant for uh, your servant uh, back in the days of Babylonian captivity, uh, it's not only relevant for your people in the times of Roman oppression, uh, but even now, Lord, uh, it's relevant for your people in the times of uh, modern oppression that we face. Uh, uh, We still face this battle of worldviews, this battle of uh, God being real or not real. Um, Lord, would you give us uh, learning and insight from this book that would help us not only uh, know you better and know your word better, but also live more faithfully to you Um, in in all of the uh, uh, ways in which we conduct ourselves, in our work, in our our private lives, in our friendships, Uh, we live with you uh, in view as the king of kings and the sovereign ruler over all the unfolding events of history. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.